First Peter. We're back where we left off in midpoint of this chapter. You all remember how I ended last week? I said this week we were going to hear from the Holy Spirit, and I used the term conviction. No one likes that term. No one likes to hear that the Holy Spirit may show up and tell us things we don't like to hear. But that's a natural consequence of studying His Word. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, as I hope you do by faith, then I defy you to open up God's Word and not hear from the Holy Spirit in conviction at times. Because that is the element, one of the elements He uses to draw us closer to Him and to change our ways. So in chapter 1 of 1 Peter today, the author, the Apostle Peter, is going to take a bit of a shift. If I could characterize what we've done in the first half of this chapter, this is what I would call it. I would say that Peter has been working to encourage us to live in the hope of the salvation we have been given. Encouraging us to live according to that hope. In the second half of this chapter, he moves now into an exhortation for us to live or to walk in a holiness worthy of that salvation. You've received it. You understand it. Hopefully you're living in the hope of it. But are you living in a manner that is consistent with it? I want to put some structure to what Peter's going to do here because he goes through a number of points. He's going to begin with helping us prepare to live a holy life. And there is preparation involved in that. Then he's going to move into a discussion of uh, the need for holiness. Why? And then he's going to end this chapter with uh, a quick, abbreviated reference to how God himself will enable us to live a holy life. Our preparation, our need and understanding of why, and then God's enabling of us to do it. That's how he ends his chapter. Let's begin where we left off, about verse 13 of 1 Peter. We'll read a few verses and then we'll see where God is taking us in this. 1 Peter... 113, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. And I'm going to pause there, though the verse continues. I want to pause there because it's at this point he is finished with his preparation steps. So remember where we've been? All of the things about our salvation we should understand and embrace. The hope that comes with it. The future rewards that come with it. The present day trials that will be a part of it. The past work that God has done through the saints and through the prophets to bring it to us. We've understood all of that. And then he begins in verse 13, therefore. You've probably heard it said before, but when you come to a therefore, you need to ask, what's it there for? If it's trite, I'm sorry, I don't have much original material. I have to, I have to steal wherever I can. He says, therefore, which in other words means because we have been chosen for such an incredible salvation, we then have an obligation to respond. And not just in any way, not just whatever way comes to mind, there is a specific way that as a believer we are to respond to the salvation God has appointed to us. And that response is holiness. Holiness or holy living. Or if that word sounds too high and mighty to you, just try righteous living. Or, simply put, being like God, doing as He would do in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions, which is the definition of holiness. Peter begins by saying that we have to do this, we have to prepare for this in a certain way. You know, it's my experience that as I look in the culture we live in today, we are a culture of action and planning. You know, we plan the work and then we work the plan. And in all cases, I don't mean, I don't care if you're just talking commerce, if you're talking in volunteer activities or family activities or in our backyard garden, our culture is extremely adept at planning for the work, of having a one-year plan, a five-year plan, a retirement plan. Uh, of you know, we, we can plan anything. 
We can build the, the World Trade Centers. We can dig the Panama Canal. You know, we, we can do almost anything if we set our minds to it and we understand that our success in that endeavor is directly proportional to our willingness to plan it out. It's not by chance, right? It doesn't just come because we want it. That's the world we live in. And in fact, we're so good at that, it's a science now in our culture, that people who figure out how to plan well write books and they sell it to the rest of us who are trying to figure out how to plan well. Right? That's the culture we live in. Self-help is another way to look at that. But just in general, planning and organized thinking are, all, are understood in every aspect of our culture to be a necessary preparatory step to success in any endeavor. Now, take that mindset, which you accept readily everywhere else you go, I know you do, and come into the Christian context and ask yourself, how much planning and preparation do you take upon yourself to meet the goals that you've set for yourself in your Christian walk? Do you even have goals in your Christian walk? But how much planning and preparation do we take toward those goals? Look what Peter says. He says, we begin in this pursuit of holiness, which he says is a necessary response to our salvation, by doing what? Preparing our minds for action. Now, the words he's using here in the Greek are really interesting because they give you a picture of exactly what he's expecting us to do. The phrase here in Greek literally means, gird your mind. Where it says, prepare your minds, the word in Greek is gird. Now, that may not mean much to you right now, but I want you to understand in that culture how that word was used. Men in that culture did not wear suits. They didn't wear pants generally. They didn't wear the kind of clothes you and I know today. They wore what? Any Sunday school boy or girl in here could answer the question, right? What did Jesus wear? What did the apostles wear? Their bathrobe, right? It's a joke, but literally they wore tunics, so they wore these, these long flowing clothes that went all the way down to the feet. And that's because showing your legs in that culture as a man was a very dishonorable thing to do. If you are going to do something that requires exertion, and I don't just mean running. I mean any kind of labor, any kind of work. You're not going to do it very effectively with long flowing robes. You're going to gird your, your loins is the phrase, but you're going to bring this long flowing robe up and tie it off at your waist. Now you're ready for work. And everyone sees that you're ready for work. I mean, it's not just the functional aspect of it. It's a picture as well. It's a statement. I'm here for work, and look, I'm serious about this now. Peter says to you and I, gird your mind. Gird your mind, which, of course, is a euphemism. It's a picture. There's no real girding involved. What he's saying here is, be forceful in your action here by starting with this preparatory step of your mind, of saying to yourself, I am ready for work. I'm going to take a step of preparation here, similar to how he took a step of preparation in his clothing when he was working to do something in an active way. Get ready for action. Make up your mind that you are going to act decisively. So that may be a summing way to put it. Now, understand here before we go much further, we don't do anything of any measurable value, spiritually speaking, unless the Holy Spirit in us does that work through us. In our own efforts, we go nowhere fast. We all, I hope, understand that. And, in fact, Peter himself will bring this up again later. But at the very least, you also ought to be willing to acknowledge that though apart from the Spirit we can do nothing, that doesn't mean we don't have a part to play. It certainly doesn't mean we are a passive observer to what the Holy Spirit does through us, for it is the command of Scripture that we ourselves participate with the Holy Spirit. Another way to say it would be we yield to the Holy Spirit working through us. But yielding is an active effort on our part. 
of turning from something and giving to the Holy Spirit our mind and our attention. Peter says, you want to understand how to seek holiness, knowing that it is our command to do so? Then start by seeking holiness in your mind, making that a step of action. We will not be holy in this life by luck. It's not going to come just by chance. It will not come because we wish it will happen. Because we sit in pews and then every Sunday somebody tells us we should do it. Yep, you're right, Steve. We should do that. Hmm. How about this? Go to work and sit in an office and have your boss say, you know, we should raise our profits by 20% this year. Yep, we should do that. Yep, hope it happens. Will it happen that way? Well, obviously not. And no one in that room who wants to keep their job is going to sit there and say, well, I just hope it happens. They're going to go, okay, 20% this year. Let's see. That means we're going to have to do this and this and this, and here's my plan. I better start on it now. And we assume that's normal behavior. And then someone in this context says, you know, holiness comes as a function of, number one, a mental attitude that says, that is my goal now. I'm going to go do it. Wow, what a revolutionary thought. That's the call on a Christian life is to come into conformance, in, in our conformity, in our mind with Christ. To set our mind on these goals of holiness. And I say, I'm kind of beating this horse for a minute, because in my experience, and I'll say this generally, not obviously here necessarily, but in general, I run into Christians who will bemoan the fact that they can't seem to find in their own life the opportunity, the ability to deal with the sin in their lives. To move away from those things that used to characterize their life as an unbeliever, and move toward holiness in all aspects of their life. It's sort of this kind of my hands are tied reaction. Or it would be so nice the day I get to go home and see the Lord where I'll finally be done with all this sin in my life. Well, you know what? You don't have to wait. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You will have that opportunity. But why don't we get started now? Because the scripture says, get started now. Well, I can't do that. I mean, I have this sinful body. Well, you're not a slave to that sin anymore. So what are you doing about active steps in, in holiness, in obtaining the thing the Scripture says you now have the power to obtain through the Holy Spirit in you? Have you set your mind on it? Christians, I think, are too willing to accept what the flesh will tell them and what the enemy will, I think, also tell them, which is you are helpless, you are hopeless, and what you have as a condition will continue until the day you die. Just give in to it. And we know that is not what the Bible tells us. We are to be holy. Which means we are to first, as he says, set your mind, gird your mind, make some active decisions in your mind to seek after this holiness. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 10. For the death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lived to God. Even so, meaning likewise, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Now the word he uses here for consider, it's the Greek word that we get the word logic from. When he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, he's saying essentially the same thing Peter just said. It's a thought. Think about this. Consider yourselves logic, reason. Think about the fact that you are now dead to sin, that sin is no longer reigning over you if you would only make that your goal. He goes on in chapter 6, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and, as your, members, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. You know, he's not saying you will be holy. 
He's not saying that you are guaranteed holiness, is he? I didn't, I didn't hear that. But likewise, did he say you have no hope of holiness? Did he say, hey, you got sin in your life. That's the way it's going to be. Get used to it. He says, don't, do not, you shall. These are words of exhortation based on something that's changed in you and I. Something that's different. Before we were a believer, we could not do anything whatsoever that was holy or righteous or pleasing to God. Did you know that? Now, in your mind and in my mind, we're quickly going to draw, our, draw attention or memory back to things in our past. We're going to say, wait a minute, what Steve just said doesn't make sense to me. Because I can remember before I was a believer, and I do remember doing some things that were pretty nice. I remember helping that sick neighbor next door when they were in that situation and they needed food and I went over there and brought them meals. That was a good thing. That was certainly a, a righteous work, wasn't it? That was holy, wasn't it? Now, what Scripture tells us is this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And what we learn in that verse, among others, is this. Even when you did the things you thought were good, they were sin. And the reason is simple. Because your only motivation, your only reason for doing what you did and what I did was the flesh. Because you had nothing else to draw from. You didn't have the Holy Spirit. So when you look at why you did anything, the only source for the why was your own fleshly desires. That was it. You couldn't draw on anything else because you had nothing else. And what kind of sinful desires might have, might have explained why you and I were doing nice things to people in the days before we became a believer? There's lots of reasons that the flesh can produce. You like to look good. You like to feel good. You like to, to gain the favor of your neighbor. You like to avoid the, the penalty of law when you speed. So you didn't speed. There's lots of reasons, all of them born out of a fleshly self-interest, that could explain why we do what we do. But from God's perspective, they gave him absolutely no credit and therefore they came not out of faith but out of flesh and so they are sin by definition. That's why even our good works, Isaiah says, were but filthy rags. That's what he means. He says that there is no possibility we could do anything that would please God in our flesh because the flesh is an anathema to God. It is the thing that God is determined to destroy because of its, flesh, because of its sin. The only good part about any of us at this stage is the Spirit in us, bringing us closer to God by faith. We are good because of Him, in other words. So, when Paul, and, and Peter likewise here, tells us that we are to set our minds on holiness, he is saying that with the Holy Spirit in us, we now have the means by which we can actually accomplish that command to the extent we yield to the Holy Spirit and let Him have the control. So, the first step of preparation is to set our minds to it. The second preparatory step Peter gives us actually is a perfect complement to the first. He says in verse 13, remain sober in spirit in the NASB, but actually the words in spirit don't appear in the scripture. The words literally, the word sober literally means to abstain from wine. But he's not talking specifically in this sense of what you drink. It's general here. He's talking generally here about controlling lusts. Controlling the fleshly desires to do the wrong thing. The NIV, I think, actually says it the best. It says, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. That is the sense of what he's saying here. So look at the two and how they work together. Set your mind on doing the right thing, and then get your body under control. Get your lusts, get your self-control, uh, or your lusts under control, and become self-controlled. It's a two-prong attack on sin. Doesn't it make sense? 
I mean, what are the two aspects of our life that we contend with now as a Christian? Paul talks about this at length in chapter 7 of Romans. This war that exists now in the life of a believer that wasn't there before. What is it? On the one hand, I now have the Holy Spirit in me who can, through the, through the Spirit, through the word of the, uh, the sword of the Spirit, can draw me to the right thing. But then I have this body of flesh that I contend with that still wants to do the wrong thing. Now, if you have difficulty understanding that concept or, or recognizing how it works, here's a good example or here's a good practice, good tool to let you see it for yourself in your own body. You know, the New Testament talks a lot about fasting. But in our culture today, you don't see it very much anymore. If I had to explain that, I think it's because it's indicative of the kind of culture we live in and how it's come to influence the church. But in the way it's described in Scripture and the way it was practiced in the early church, fasting was a regular daily or weekly discipline of every believer. Now, people often wonder, what is, what is the value in fasting? How is that helping me spiritually? Well, of all the urges that you contend with in your physical body... There is no urge greater than the urge to eat. Some of you may be thinking, well, I don't know about that. Let me tell you, I can guarantee you it is the strongest urge your body has to eat. So try this. Try setting aside a day sometime in the future where you will not eat. You've decided going in, this is a day of fasting. I'm going to drink just water today. No eating today. And in 24 hours, I'm going to go through that day, not eat. And the next morning, I'll go back to eating. But for one day, I'm not going to eat. Now, you've made, a, you've made up your mind. You've girded your mind. You've set your mind on it, right? What's going to happen? I'm almost certain that somewhere around lunchtime, maybe early afternoon, maybe some of you will hold out till dinner, what are you going to start feeling? You're going to start feeling like eating, and it's going to start to become an overwhelming urge. And in fact, it's going to dominate your thought. Every time you turn around, you're going to be thinking about it. Every time you have a spare moment, your mind's going to return to the fact that you're fasting and you want to eat. Now, explain this to me. Why are you struggling with that? Why would you struggle with it? I mean, you've made up your mind. It's not that hard, right? Your mind's not changed. Nothing in your mind has changed. You still have the same goal you had at the beginning of the day. I mean, we're all reasonable adults with our minds in control, right? If you set out today and said, for example, on a given day, today, I'm going to finish that expense report today, and probably you would do it, right? Your mind is determined what you're going to do, and you're going to go with the plan, right? Well, how come you can't do that in this one area as well? And if you haven't fasted, let me tell you, that's exactly what you would be facing. Because your body, through its flesh, exerts an influence on you that is separate and apart from what you do in your mind. The flesh has its own power within your body that is distinct from what you're thinking cognitively in your mind. And if you don't believe that, try fasting and watch the struggle. And ask yourself, in the midst of the struggle, why is this a struggle? Why can't I just tell myself what I want and make it true? Because the flesh has a will of its own and it influences your mind and it influences your spirit. But it can be disciplined, like Paul talks about, with a man who would discipline his body before a race, an athlete, for example. You can discipline your body, but it takes practice. If I want to go run a marathon, am I going to do it the first day I decide I want to do it? I'll get about a mile or two into it and then they're going to cart me off to the ambulance, right? I've got to start working on that. I've got to work up to it. I've got to take small steps and then more steps, and it's a process. Again, we know that's true, but we get into the Christian experience, and all of a sudden we assume that it just happens overnight. Paul says it doesn't. Paul says we have to work through the disciplines of being a Christian to achieve the maturity we want. And that would be one example of a practice I would recommend to you, if you haven't tried it, 
Try a disciplined process of fasting, maybe once a week or something, and watch its effect in your life. And I know this from, self, from doing it myself, from, from practicing it myself. I have no more greater self-control than the average guy. I'm not pretending that I do. But I can tell you that in my own effort at fasting on a regular basis, I have watched the fruit of that. And it not, it's not mystical. It's simple. It's the process of disciplining your body, of putting it into conformance with your mind and with your spirit, and of not giving into it. And it transfers. What you learn in that context will transfer to other contexts. You will find yourself being better at disciplining the flesh when you get into other lustful situations, whether it's for greed, for money, or lust for power, or lust for attention in one way or another, or sexual, obviously. But in every one of those cases, you begin to get an understanding of what it takes and how it works to discipline the flesh. And that's Peter's point here. You get your mind ready for action and you set your mind on holiness. Similarly, you begin to work on these lustful impulses of the flesh so that they don't override what you've set your mind on. You keep them in check. And not because you just want it to happen, but because you practice at it. You make it a discipline of your walk. And I also believe there's a supernatural component to this. That as we devote ourselves to those two goals, our mind and our flesh put in their proper perspective, God is inclined, He is delighted to bring a blessing into the life of the individual who is doing that so that we will be successful. His intent is to bring us to holiness, not to thwart it. But He does expect us to make that a priority in our own life and to set our mind on it and to contend with our flesh over it. And then He will do what He intends to do as well in our lives. So this is, this is the basic two-prong attack that Peter has now put in front of us as a measure of our preparation. There's one more last piece to the preparation before we move on. It's very simple. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope again. Hebrews kind of echoes it this way in chapter 6, verse 18. He says, We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. Let me give you a mental picture of what he just said. I want you to imagine a little box, maybe a, a gift, a present, set in front of you. Now, is this gift or is this present your salvation? No. Look at the verse I just read in chapter 6 of Hebrews. He said, We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. We've already taken refuge, meaning we, are, we have refuge in Christ, in the new covenant. We are already in faith. We are already saved, if you will. But yet there is still something set before us that we have to take hold of, which is what? This hope that we have, not just our eternal hope in terms of salvation or future reward, but an immediate hope, the hope that comes from the knowledge that with Christ living in us, we can achieve things we never could have otherwise. It's not hopeless, in other words. There is hope even now for achieving a holiness in our lives. But he says we must take hold of it, which leaves open this interesting possibility. It is possible, I would argue, from Scripture, that a believer could be a believer and yet not seek to take hold of the hope that comes with that salvation. Who could be a believer who literally walks around with their hands up saying, I can't make it, I can't do it, I'm hopeless. They're walking around feeling powerless, hopeless, without any chance to to rise above the difficulties of sin in their life. And he's saying, well, yeah, you can live that way if you want to, but why don't you take hold of that hope that's set before you? That's better. That's the encouragement. He says, prepare your mind, take control of your flesh, and take hold of the hope. And then he goes on in verse 15 and 16. He says, be like the Holy One who called you. 
Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So he's moving out of a discussion of preparation. Now he's moving to the why. Now, why in this case is probably something you're looking at thinking, well, this is going to be fast and easy. I got the why. We're supposed to be holy. Do you really have the why? Do we really understand it? He, you know, in verse 15, he says, be like the one who called you. He kind of reminds us of what he said at the earlier part of this letter. We were called and chosen to be brought into the faith and to become a child of God. He says, be like the one who called us. He implies a responsibility here. He says, we have a responsibility. We have an obligation to live our life in a way that honors him. And he quotes in verse 16 out of Leviticus chapter 19. Now, why is that important? Because if you understand what was being taught in Leviticus 19, then you, then you really understand why he says we are to be holy like he is holy. It's not a throwaway line. It's hearkening the reader back to something very specific. Remember, by and large, he was writing to Jewish Christians. Men and women who would have known the Old Testament like the back of their hand. Men and women who, when they heard that phrase, be holy like he is holy, it would have been like them saying, we the people, in order to found a more perfect union. You, you know exactly what I just referred to by that statement, don't you? If you know anything about civics, you know that those two phrases come out of our uh, founding documents. I didn't have to say that. You figured that out. To a Jew, to say phrases like we just read in verse 16 it immediately provoked in them a, a, a memory of something out of their scripture. Here's what it brought back to their mind. In Leviticus 19, the context of that chapter is how Israel can enjoy fellowship with God. And in that chapter, he tells the nation of Israel that they can enjoy the fellowship of God if they are holy. That holiness, in other words, is sort of a ticket to the dance. At, to the extent they are holy, they will enjoy his fellowship. Now, where that applies for you and I today, we have to first understand a couple of principles. Number one, we will never enter into God's presence until we are 100% holy. That's always been the requirement of men. Remember when Moses wanted to see God's face? God was very protective in how he allowed Moses to experience that moment because if Moses had literally come into God's presence in fullness of form, he would have been judged in the moment. That's one of the qualities of being a perfect holy God who's also perfect in justice. He cannot look upon sin and not judge it. It would be like a judge bringing a, con a criminal into court, having him convicted and then not passing sentence. That would be wrong. That would be error. And God can't do that. His character won't allow it. God can't change his nature just because he wants to. He's constrained. He's confined by his own nature. And his nature requires that he judge sin. He has, in grace, deferred the moment of judgment for mankind. Held, them, held us off at bay, if it, as it were, until a time could arrive when he would have already provided atonement for that. So that when we are brought into his presence, our sin has already been accounted for. Otherwise, he'd have to judge every man and woman who came before him. Similarly, he says to the nation of Israel, you can't be in my presence unless you are holy. And he drew that wonderful picture in the tabernacle where he had the Holy of Holies and only one man could go in there one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And then only after he had sacrificed for his own sin and if you know the story of how that used to be done, they used to send the high priest in there once a year behind the curtain, behind the, the shroud that no one else could penetrate. And he would go into the Holy of Holies and they had a rope tied around him. Have you heard that story? The reason they had the rope tied around him was if the guy dropped dead in there for some unknown reason, no one else was going to go in there after him. So at least they could pull him out. That's literally why it was done. The holiness of God was pictured in the way the tabernacle and the temple ran in such a vivid way for the nation of Israel, they understood how far they were from holiness and how dangerous it was to be in God's presence unless you were holy. 
And he draws that picture out in the chapter 19 of Leviticus to say it doesn't just stop there. It's not just the ultimate presence of God holiness issue here. There's an immediate issue as well. You will not enjoy my fellowship even from afar unless you are holy in your best efforts. Granted, we will not achieve holiness in this world, this side of heaven. That's not in the game plan. But that doesn't alleviate the responsibility to seek it. And he says, to the extent you seek it, you will enjoy my fellowship. And to the extent you do not seek it, you will suffer the lack of my fellowship. Now, to a believer, what are we saying here? At the moment we are saved, we are brought into the children of God. We have the Holy Spirit indwell us. We are forever saved. And we can expect on the day of our death and our presence before the Lord, no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we are not talking here about performance in order to obtain our salvation. That would be works. And the Bible is clear that that is not the way by which men are saved. Even as you sit here right now, from God's perspective, you are already holy and sanctified. You are already fully ready to enter into His presence. Not because of what you and I have done, but because of what His Son has done. He sees us through, another way to put it is, He sees us through Jesus' goggles. He's looking down on us. He sees us, but what He sees in place of our sin is Christ's own holiness attributed to us, given to us by faith. But that's a positional kind of holiness. That means that if he had to decide right now to take you home, absent the body is present with the Lord because in that moment he just allows that positional holiness to reign. You are brought into his presence on the basis of Christ's work, not your own. So positionally, we are holy. The fancy word for that is we are justified. We have been justified already, made holy, made innocent before God. But that's only one sense of how we are perfect before God or holy before God. The word holiness literally means set apart, as in set apart from sin. So while we are positionally holy before God, His expectation on each of us is that we would actually live out holiness in our lives even now. That we would set ourselves apart from sin even now as we wait for the day when He will complete that work in us, making us holy in fact, not just in position. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 puts it this way. By one sacrifice, meaning Christ's sacrifice, by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Isn't that weird? He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Well, how can both be true? I'm either perfect or I'm not, in which case I still need to be made holy. What this phrase out of Hebrews chapter 10 is referring to is this dual expectation that from God's perspective, you're perfect. There's no more work to be done in terms of salvation. But on the, in the meantime, you and I both know we're not perfect. And therefore, He is by His Holy Spirit making us holy in the meantime. The fancy term for that is sanctification. So while I have been justified by faith, made perfect in God's view, I still have work to do and it's called sanctification. The Holy Spirit in me, conforming me to Christ more and more and more every day of my life. And I am to yield to that work. You know, we mope and I know that sometimes I do this too. We kind of mope and whine that, you know, we can't sense Christ in our life sometimes. I go through these valleys in my life when you know, God's not around and I feel alone and I don't sense Him with me anymore. And I'm not making light of that. I know those are real dark times in people's lives and I, I recognize the reality of it. 
But I also want to throw back an idea for you if you found yourself in that state or if you do find yourself in that state sometime. I want you to go back to what Scripture says. Our fellowship with God is dependent on our seeking holiness in our lives. He is faithful even when we are faithless. I'm not suggesting He, in some sense, leaves us or that in any sense our salvation is at risk. That's not what the Scripture is saying. The availability of that relationship is based on faith. But the enjoyment of that relationship is based on our personal holiness. Absolutely. And if you're a parent in here, I'm not speaking anything you don't already know. If your child is consistently disobedient to you, do you treat them like it's just another day? Is everything just hunky-dory? I mean, if you want an experiment for yourselves, try this. And I'm not responsible for what happens in your personal relationships if you do this. If you're married, I want you to go home and try this for a day and see what happens. I want you to just be completely disobedient to your spouse at all times for an entire day and see what happens. Everything they ask for, don't do it. Anything they ask you to do, do the opposite. Completely ignore them. Now, you know I'm being facetious here. But what kind of day would you have with your spouse, do you think? Would you have fellowship with your spouse in the midst of that? Well, of course not. And if some of you have already started doing this, I suggest you stop. All right? But you get my point, right? God is not asking us for anything different. I mean, His expectations are hardly bizarre. They're just saying the same thing we do in our own relationships. If you want abiding fellowship with the Father who has saved you, then do what He asks you to do. And when you don't, don't be surprised if you feel like you've been left out somewhere on your own, like what we do with our kids. Put them in a corner. Put them in a room. I mean, how else is He going to get our attention? Doesn't a loving Father discipline His children? Didn't we just cover that? Isn't discipline the right response to disobedience? And if so, why are we surprised when our life has that turn? I often want to take a Christian aside who's expressing those, those moments and, and saying, you know, let's just look at what you're doing in your life right now. Can we just go through a list of all of your decisions and your choices and your priorities? Are you sure your life is organized according to what Scripture would expect? Because if you are, then we do have a mystery here about why God is not abiding with you, why you feel abandoned. But before we assume it's God, maybe we should look at those lists and see what we find. That would actually be, I think, the the right place to start in our own lives, for ourselves, and asking those hard questions of ourselves. The Apostle John writes it this way in his first letter. He says, By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word... In Him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, John puts an extra sort of twist on this. John says, you know, if you find someone who in their everyday life lives in this unbridled subjection to their own flesh, who never, does, never gives any evidence at all that they're willing to consider what the Bible says about what holy living should be. If you run into someone like that, and then at the same time they try to tell you they're a Christian, something doesn't make sense. I mean, I guess it's technically possible, you know, I've said this many times, if you catch me on the wrong day, I don't look very Christian. You know, I'm not excusing it, I'm just acknowledging that I have bad days too. But I think the context of John's letter is more general than that. He's saying... In general, day after day after day, for a lifetime, if someone's life never shows any fruit of an attempt to keep what the Lord has told us to keep in our life, then really, what evidence would you have that they're a believer? I mean, if they look like the world, if they quack like a duck, sound like a duck, you know, what are they? That's the sense of his letter. 
for us individually, that's also a command on us to live out what we say we believe. To be the one we say we are. So that's the first reason. Because of Leviticus 19. Because by holiness we will be able to experience and enjoy fellowship. The second reason we're to seek holiness now is so that we might bring Him glory for the work He has done in our hearts. And this is simple, it's simple to express out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus Himself says this, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I really like the way He starts that. He says, Let your light shine in such a way. What I hear Him saying is, Your light's always shining. You can't turn it off. In other words, you are known as a Christian. The Holy Spirit is in you and He is going to bring to life that part of you which identifies you as a child of God. And it's going to shine. Now, is it going to shine in such a way that someone looks at you and goes, well, if that's what a Christian is, God help us all. Or is it going to shine in such a way that they would actually see God at work and glorify Him? That's the sense of what I say, what I hear him saying. It's not that you can at some times shine and then at other times you're not shining. No, let your light shine in such a way, he says, that they may see your good works. And I believe, as I read into that, instead of your bad works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the second reason we seek holiness is so that our present experience would be marked by a life lived in holiness to the glory of Christ's name. He says in verse 17, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear knowing the time of your stay on earth or during uh, during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is a third reason of why we should seek holiness. It opens with this particle if. You know, little words don't often mean a lot, but sometimes they do. This is the Greek word EI, or literally the letters E and I. It's expressed in the first class condition. All that simply means is, what I've just said is true, and if so, there's a necessary condition that follows. Given this, then this must be true. That's the term of the word. That's the sense of it. You could use the word since. You could say, instead of if, use since. Since. Since these men and women call God their Father, and that's what we do as believers, Abba, Father, He says, that's, not, that's true enough, but because of that, you need to also understand He is your impartial judge. In other words, it's not enough to simply appreciate the fact that you are of your Father, God. It is also important to appreciate He has a role to play as judge, and He plays that role through His Son. Acts tells us that He appointed all judgment to the Son, so that Christ will act as judge over all mankind. And if you understand what that means then you have a very different appreciation for why you need to seek holiness. Now, I want to clarify something about what he means here when he uses the word judge. If you had a negative view of your mind, in your mind, like the judge who you walked in front of to, to handle that parking ticket that you, you got recently or that traffic ticket, if you had one of those recently, that's not a very positive sense of the word judge, right? You're assuming that that person's intent in judging you is to find fault or to determine if you had fault. That's not the sense of this word. This word here in the Greek... It's got a very different sense to it. It's krino, which literally means to find good. 
To look in the sense of finding good. A rough way of explaining that might be like a science fair judge. You know, when you see your science fair judges coming along, they're working double overtime to find something good with every one of those exhibits, right? Unless, unless it's mine. I mean, I mean, in my case, it was really the other way around. They were looking for problems because they always found them. But generally, the science fair judges are always there to find good. What is there good about this exhibit? What is there good in this exhibit? That's the role Christ will play for you and I. Now, he is judge of the unbelieving world, too. And when he judges them, it's under very different circumstances. But there is a judgment, likewise, for believers. And we face this judgment upon our individual death. It's not one big moment where we're all there together. It's individually, every believer, upon their death, absent the body, is present with the Lord, and we receive what we have coming to us, we're told. Paul describes this same moment, the judgment seat of Christ, in his letter to the second letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 5, verse 8 or so it starts. He says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I hope that sobers us up a little bit, because if you're looking for more reasons why you might want to seek holiness in your life, he's saying, don't forget that this one you call Father, he's also your judge through Christ. And what is this judgment? It is, think of it like a test. It's a test that comes among all, uh, on, upon all believers at the point of our death, and it's a moment, as Paul describes it, when we will be judged for all that we have done, both good and bad. Now, how does a believer understand that moment? Because as we've already covered, we will stand before God in that moment of our glorification justified. No sin, no condemnation for sin. As Psalms tells us, our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And we're, we're resting in that and we're, we have hope because of that. And yet, we will face a moment when all our good and bad is trotted out before the Lord, if you will, and He will be judging us for it. Now, what does that mean then? What is the judgment about? We'll go back to the Word. It is a judgment for the sake of looking for good, not a judgment for the sake of condemnation. Secondly, these are works, these are works that were done in faith, having become a believer, and in the name of Christ, or under the banner of faith, for the sake of God's glory. There can be good works, and there can be bad works. What would be a good work? Well, a good work is simply anything you did as the Holy Spirit directed, which by its very nature was designed to glorify God. And in your yielding to the Holy Spirit, you became an instrument of a good work that God did through you. It could be something simple. It could be something like helping a friend or a neighbor, or a prayer that you said silently in your bedroom according to the Holy Spirit's guidance in that moment. It could be something much grander and bigger. But whatever it is, it brought glory to God and it was done by the power of the Holy Spirit through you. What would be a bad work? Well, a bad work would be those things that were done supposedly in the name of Christ, supposedly under the banner of faith, but when we get right down to it, we really did them for ourselves. They were done under some kind of selfish motive. We did them with selfish desires or we did them independent of what God himself has told, told us to do. Now, we may have represented it as God. We may have said, you know, God has told me I'm supposed to come do this thing right here. But in reality, we were doing that in the flesh. Remember, we can have a motive out of our flesh, or we can have a motive out of the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder to us that not everything we think we're doing that's good is in fact what God would call us to do. 
it is the reality of the fact that we still make a lot of mistakes. And yet, we put them under this title of our Christian faith and we kind of pass them off as if they are Christian. And you and I have seen this happen. If you want a good example of this, Christ describes one in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 6 when he turns to the disciples and he says this, chapter 6, verse 5, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Now, I understand that the Pharisees were not believers, and that's clear enough out of the Gospels. But he didn't say this to them, did he? He said, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to believers. Which means we could, if we're not careful, fall into the same trap that those hypocrites did. We could do a bad work just like they did. What would be the bad work? Seeking the praises of men, in this case. Standing on the street corner, looking religious, looking Christian, but going out of your way to make sure it's public. You know, I mentioned earlier fasting. One of the principles, one of the rules I have adopted for myself in this respect is when I'm fasting, you'll never know. I won't tell anyone. I won't make a point of saying it to anyone. You know, he talks about fasting. Christ talks about fasting in this same area of Matthew. And he says, and when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who have long drawn out faces and walk around so that everyone knows, oh, he's fasting. Look, he's feeling bad. No, wash your face, he says. Look normal and cheery and don't give any sign of what's going on. He says, and when you do that, your Father in Heaven will know and He will reward you in secret. He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking about when you are doing things for the right motivation to bring Him glory or to discipline yourself and in some way seek holiness, and you don't seek the praises of men, you leave yourself opportunity to be rewarded by your Father in Heaven. But when you let your selfish, fleshly desires take hold and drive you to do things for the praises of men, well, when you get that praise, you better enjoy it because that's all you're getting. You got your reward. You got what you wanted. You got what you were seeking. That's the point. Now, that doesn't condemn you. That's not putting your salvation at risk. I mean, we're off that page. We're on a different page. And the page here is one of, are you seeking holiness with the intent to please your Lord? Or are you seeking personal Uh, favor with other individuals. Seeking your own glory, in other words. That's what bad works will be. And so, as you consider about why you would seek holiness now, Peter says, one of the reasons you seek it is because you remember you face the Lord in a seat of judgment one day. And when you sit in front of Him, what you want to hear Him say is, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the glory of my rest. You don't want Him to say, ooh, when you did that one, Steve, remember? You really wanted that person to like you, didn't you? That's not what we seek. We seek the praises of our Father. Third reason he says seek holiness is simply, he says, you have a fear of God. Now, that word is often misunderstood today. It's misunderstood in one of two ways. Either when we hear the Scriptures telling us to fear God, we assume it's a, a word that means terror, as in don't want to be near Him, don't want to have anything to do with Him, be afraid of Him like we're afraid of the boogeyman. It doesn't mean that. That's an unhealthy kind of fear. But you know what? You can get it wrong another way. The other way you can get it wrong is you dismiss any aspect of fear. You say, oh, no, that just means we need to have you know, respect for him. Well, that's true, but that's not what... If they wanted that word, they would have used the word respect. They used the word fear for a reason. Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Think about the Old Testament. Anytime somebody in the Old Testament had any kind of theophany, which is a fancy word for uh, God in some form appearing before them, whether it's the angel of the Lord or a pillar of fire or a burning bush or whatever, or a dream, 
Go back and look at all of those examples as you may come, they may come to mind. Flip through your Old Testament. What happens every time there is a theophany? What happens to the individual? They fall on their face in abject fear. They're so afraid, they won't even look up. And in fact, it's so common that when an angel appears to men, they have the same reaction. It's so common, in fact, that I make a joke of this, but the, the standard greeting must be among angels, do not fear, because it's the first thing they always say. Do not fear. I'm Michael. How are you? Do not fear. You know, it's just something they just say every time because it's the natural reaction of men. If you are in the presence of God and His holiness, you will be utterly terrified even knowing you're saved. Now, I'm not saying that fear has to grip you forever. I'm not saying that you are always living in fear. I mean, I don't take this the wrong way. But don't minimize it either. Don't minimize it. Which is another motivation, in other words. If you're not willing, and if I'm not willing to seek holiness because it's the right thing to do because He is holy as we are holy, if we're not willing to do it because we seek His fellowship, if we're not doing, willing to do it because we have an understanding of the fact we will face Him for judgment one day, then at the very least, have a healthy fear of what will happen if you live a life of disobedience from beginning to end despite what He has done to save you. At least be willing to understand the moment that's coming in all its fullness. Finally, as we look at the reasons why he gives for us to do what we do, he ends with, I think, his most important argument for why. He's saved the best for last. In the verses I've already read, he said, consider what it took for God to even open the opportunity for fellowship and for salvation. That the blood of, of Christ himself was the necessary element to bring you into the relationship. And I mean, you only have to think as far as your own family. What would you expect of someone else if you had to save their life by willingly putting your own child to death in their place, if you could even bring yourself to do that, if we could even imagine what it must take to take our own child, say, sorry, son, but you're going to have to die so that you know, Aunt Betty can live, put him to death. Now, having done that, what do you expect out of Aunt Betty? What kind of response to you? Now, I'm not saying she has to be a slave and work in your kitchen the rest of her life, I and mean, we can get silly about this, but even in such a bizarre example as that, do you understand what kind of expectations attach from God to those whom He saved in that way? Can you even set a limit to those expectations? If you're even willing to do that, I mean, we can't imagine that. That's all He's saying through Peter today. He's saying, if God has put His own Son, this spotless Lamb, this holy God-man who was foreknown by God to do this even before the foundations of the world, who was the Creator Himself through whom all things were created, if that one could be put to death on your for your sake, what limit is there in God's expectation of your life? Can you even imagine one? And are you prepared to live up to that or even try? Finally, to end the chapter, the last few verses, this is a simple end, but powerful. He gives us the means by which God is going to enable us to do all these things. Verse 22, he says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. This is the essential ingredient for success. It's actually two parts. He says, you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. That just means you've become a believer. Obedience to the truth here means obedience to the truth, capital T. Truth meaning Christ. Obedience to Him in terms of believing the Gospel. 
Because you have, by your belief in the Gospel, purified your souls, He says now, love one another. So the first ingredient that God has given us to succeed in this pursuit of holiness is, well, look around this room. If you're saying, well, that's not going to help me enough, Steve. I need more than that. Well, then you're underestimating the power of God to work through the church. And I mean the church in terms of the individuals in this room and others who would join you perhaps one day. The, the God that saved you saved them. The God that put His Spirit in you put His Spirit in them. And He is prepared to work through the body of Christ whenever it gathers, however it gathers, to strengthen you for the purpose He has set before you. Holiness. How does He do it? Well, it doesn't happen because you sit in here, wave to each other once a week, and then go home and wait for the next Sunday. No, that's not going to happen. You're right. But if you are in relationships with one another, and those come in a variety of ways then God will open doors through those relationships for accountability, for example. For a chance for one person to know your particular weaknesses in how the flesh rules in your life and to confront you on it in a loving way and to ask you the pointed question, hey, did you have any trouble this week? Did it work out like you said? Did you fall any time this week? And your opportunity to confess in that moment will bring your flesh once again under the command of your spirit and your mind where you're forced to confess, bring it out again, and recommit to dealing with it. But if you're not doing that with anyone you know, if you don't have that kind of an accountability relationship, well, there's no, no doubt you're going to struggle. There, there's no question that you're going to have a hard time in maturing. It's no surprise that holiness is not a command in your life. Similarly, prayer. Similarly, study of the Word. In fact, that's his second point. These are the ways in which the body will, through love, reinforce this command to holiness. To the extent a church works together, it will succeed together. And to the extent it's just a bunch of individuals who show up once a week, you'll live like individuals. It's a direct relationship. The second thing he says is, you were born by a new seed. This is powerful. If I were to take your parents, those, and I'm talking here to the adults, if I were to go find your parents somewhere and bring them into this room and line them up, I'd be willing to bet you I could match you to your parents more often than not. And how would I do that? Just by looks, right? It's a sign of how we are like our Father. We are born into a seed that represents or is, real, is similar to the Father. No, that doesn't surprise us, right? Similarly, spiritually, we were born into the nature of our spiritual Father, who was Adam. And that's why we were born into this life with a sinful nature, because we inherited that nature from our Father, who inherited it from his Father, all the way back to Adam. But by the Holy Spirit, we were born again. You were given a new birth. Literally, God now looks at your genealogy and traces you back to Christ, not to whatever your real earthly genealogy was. And it's not just on paper. Spiritually, you now have a spirit that is like your new father rather than the one that was like your old father. So, what characteristics your father has will be the characteristics you now have. Which is why John says, those who say they are Christian and don't live like it are lying. Because if you were a Christian, your nature would be like the seed you're born of. And as a new believer in Christ, you are born into a new seed. You will represent and reflect that seed in your life. So, Peter's second point about how we could actually succeed in achieving holiness is to remind us that you have a new seed now. You were not born a perishable, but imperishable seed. A seed now that will never end in your life, and it can change you. It's at work doing that very thing. Final point. He says, it did it through the living and enduring Word of God. Now, if you know anything about my ministry, if you happen to go out on the web or listen to anything else I teach or read anything I put out there, you know that the central message of the ministry God has given me is the power of God's Word to do everything God intends to do in your life and in the world generally. I don't need Dr. Phil. 
I don't need the, the 40 days of this or the seven secrets to that. Everything God is prepared to do in the world and in you, He has prepared in His Word. And until you've exhausted this resource, you don't need a second one. And I don't need a second one. And Peter's just saying right now that the means by which God is going to produce holiness in our life, the sword of that Spirit that's working in your heart, is the Word of God. And I'll say this on the authority of Scripture. You show me a Christian who's in the Word regularly, in a meaningful way, I'll show you a Christian who's on his way to holiness, who's on the road toward holiness. Not because of his own work, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is the engine inside each of us that will produce holiness, then the Word of God is the fuel for that engine. You starve the engine, it doesn't go very far. And, and being in the Word is, a, is something that can come in a variety of ways. But let me tell you, folks, if you honestly desire holiness in your life because of what the Word says and why, then you only have to go as far as your own Bible and make it a pursuit to understand and to, to live in the pages of the Bible. And God will do the rest. It's just that straightforward. I'm not saying it'll be easy. I'm not saying it'll be pain-free. But it will come because God can make that happen. That's the end of this first chapter. If that's sobering, okay, blame the Holy Spirit, not me. But let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's end our morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, we understand conviction is the necessary consequence of time spent in Your Word. Necessary, Father, because we are not who we should be. And it is a part of how Your Word will affect us, Father, because as the sword of the Spirit, it is the fuel that He will use in our lives to show us our error and to command us down the road toward holiness. But, Father, You've also told us in Your Word that the fruit of a life pursued in the hope of holiness is fruit, Father, that can come from no other source, that whatever it is in our lives that gives us joy and comfort and hope pales in comparison to what holiness would bring if we would only seek it. We trust in that promise, Father. We trust that as we devote ourselves to knowing your desires in our life and yielding to them, you will do the work and you will bring us the blessing that obedience brings. And we trust you, Father. We know that the word today, as it's been spoken, uh, may have been tough at times, but we trust, Father, that there was a good purpose in it as you have good to do in all our lives. May we come back next week, Father, with a week having been devoted to holiness, some simple first steps, Father, as you've given us direction, a commitment in our minds, uh, an effort at self-control, a willingness, Father, to rest in the hope that holiness brings. Let those things reign in our hearts and minds this week. And, uh, Father, I do pray, as always, for this church that the light that they represent to their community would continue and you would make it brighter and you would lead more to it. And we pray, Father, that you could do a great work through the efforts of those who have gathered in your name here. And then the week to come, Father, we pray you would have a wish to bring us back here, Father. Make that, we make that our desire and we pray, Father, for it to be yours as well. In Jesus' name, amen.